Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to day 19 of 31 Days of Terror. I have one spooky story for you today and this story comes from Craig and it's a long one. So grab yourself a nice hot drink and settle in. Boys camp at my summer camp was a unique place. It seemed designed either from the very early days of the camp or as an afterthought, following a clearing of a vacant land. It was far removed from the cluster of buildings of the rest of the camp. The summer of 1995 was my second year as a counsellor at the camp, and my tenth year at the camp altogether. I was in charge of a group of kids roughly aged 11 to 13, just on the verge of puberty. Half of them knew each other from home, and were all on the same hockey team, so they had an air of toughness about them. The other kids were from all over, and fit in well enough but didn't quite meet the bravado of the hockey gang. Over the first week I got the sense from these guys that they loved being at camp, but not so much the rules and traditions. They would show up on time and participate, but their real focus was to try and impress the girls' camp. They were also old enough to start getting a peek behind the curtain at all things hidden from campers, especially at a young age. One of these was that every night, once the kids were asleep, or the older kids at least settled, the counsellors would all leave their cabins of eight or nine kids and meet at the lodge to discuss programming, review some of their struggles with staff, or just socialise and snack on the leftover desserts from dinner. Occasionally, couples would duck out for some fun in the woods or under canoes, or if you were lucky enough and were dating someone with access to the buildings, you'd get a private room to yourself in the form of a lifeguard hut or a nature lodge. All while this was happening, there would be a group of five counsellors a night who would stay behind, stationed at a picnic table in the centre of a camp, under a light in case anyone needed them, or to keep an eye and an ear out for any mischief. Leaving your cabin after dark as a camper was strictly forbidden and could be met with a trip home. This was called the Night Patrol, K-N-I-G-H-T. The K was to give the illusion that they were there to help and not what 90% of their time was spent doing, which was hiding behind the cabins to spy and intercept any plans to escape or prank other cabins, start a giant pillow fight, or reveal their hiding places for any contraband. It was while I was stationed at the night patrol about the second week of summer that the strange visits by our figure began. I was at the picnic table with two other patrollers when we heard screams from the far end of the boys' camp housing the 12 to 16-year-olds. Loving the authority trip, two of us darted out and headed towards the noise. As they were older voices, our first instincts were a prank, as it was not a cry of war, but one of shock or surprise. As we got closer to the cabin, we heard several loud bangs that sounded like something heavy hitting a large piece of hollow wood. The noises were sporadic and out of sequence, so our next thought was that there was some type of attack, where something was being thrown at the victims of the prank from within the walls of the cabin. When we reached the screams, I was preparing myself for the worst, as it was my cabin the voices were coming from. I knew whatever I found on the other side was going to lead to a long lecture, and my creative thinking to come up with some sort of repercussion. All right, what the hell is going on? I started as I swung open the wire-hinged door and stepped inside. A common tactic used by the night patrol would be to never turn on the lights to the cabin when entering. This way, by shining your light in the culprit's faces, you would obstruct your face and remain anonymous and mysterious. 
you would often be in clothing majority of the kids wouldn't see you wearing in the day, like hoodies or even a coat. This way, they wouldn't know what to expect when you entered, giving you the upper hand and an element of surprise. If the lights were turned on, this element of surprise was gone, and the cop shining a light in your eyes technique of intimidation would not scare them into settling back down and going to sleep. So as I swung the door open and shone my light at the four sets of two bunks to see who was missing or caught in the act, I was met by two surprises. The first was as I stepped through the threshold of the cabin, my foot was met with several large heavy objects, of which a few got kicked across the floor, making a heavy rolling noise as they went. This distracted me only for a second from the other surprise, which I uncovered in the two seconds my light was on the bunks before I had redirected it to see what was on the floor. This shock was that the group of womanising pre-teen hockey players did not look like they had just been busted. They were all pressed against the far sides of their bunks and were sitting up, as if they had been cornered by something and had nowhere to go. I did have time to linger on the oddness of that, but quickly swung my light to the ground to see what I assumed was the culprit of the banging noises we heard while we were sprinting to the cabin. As the objects came to a stop, my light revealed that the mysterious cluster of objects at the door were D batteries, somewhere between six and ten of them. My light then returned to the bunks again where I began to take in the scene a bit more, but not before I maintained my authority by asking, Who wants to explain why there is a pile of batteries at the door? Now, when a group of kids have been caught doing something wrong, they all want to free themselves of guilt and will proceed to ramble their pleas of innocence over each other, sometimes laughing at the ridiculousness of their own lies, maybe even still finding humour in the act they have just been caught in. This was not the case tonight. For a few seconds, they remained silent, looking to each other, as if not wanting to be the one to speak first. But their faces revealed to me that this was not out of fear of having to fess up to something really heinous they now had no escape from. This was different. And as the seconds passed until the first boy spoke, I could see they looked terrified, and certainly not of us. Some of them were clutching their flashlights, but I noticed that none of these lights were on. There were also a few other objects in the middle of the room, like a pair of shoes, some shorts and a book. My character changed quickly after my quick scan of the room and moved from the rush of a good bust to friend and counsellor. What happened in here? I asked in a more inquisitive tone this time, in hopes my shift to uncovering the story more than getting them in trouble would yield a response. Then one of them spoke, the leader of the group. There was someone at the door looking through the screen, he said. This didn't seem odd as kids would wander to and from spying and pranking each other. Also, the night patrol would constantly be peeking in doors and windows to check on the kids, especially if they were not asleep yet. What did they look like? My co-counsellor asked. Tall, the leader replied. Like your height, maybe a bit taller, not skinny but not fat. We rattled off the names of several of the male counsellors that it could have been, returning from the lodge early and poking their nose in to spy on their business before heading off to bed. No, it wasn't a counsellor and they were acting weird. They just stood at the door totally still but looking at us. We said, who is it? But he just kept staring and not moving. We joked around with him for a second thinking he was just trying to be cool, but he didn't move and he just stayed there. I sensed there was something more about to come. So I picked up my flashlight to shine it on them to see who it was. He was cut off by one of the other boys who finally managed to speak up. But no one was there. We were a bit confused, but still had a collection of logical answers. So maybe you thought you saw someone, but it was just the shadow from a tree or something. No, it was a person, but we could only see him in the dark. I was confused by the story. My instincts, if I had been the one to shine my light on it and watch it disappear, would have been that my eyes were playing tricks on me. I would easily have accepted that, maybe being a bit unsettled at how real it looked, but moved on nonetheless. He didn't leave, the first boy added back. 
I got freaked out when no one was there and pulled my light down and looked away. Then I heard Josh say, go away, and I looked back at the door. The same guy was still standing there, completely still, staring at us. So I shined my light on him again and nothing was there, so I really freaked out. The other guys were seeing him too, and Josh threw his book at the door. He still wasn't moving, so I started screaming to try and scare him away, but it didn't work. We started throwing everything we could at the door, pants, shoes. I told everyone to take their batteries out of their flashlights and throw them at the door, but he wouldn't move. It was only once your flashlight started shining in through the cabin that he disappeared. Now worrying there was a prowl around the property, I looked behind me with one foot out the door and asked them which way he ran to. There was a second of silence again, and the answer caused me to briefly hold my urge to run after them. He didn't run. He just wasn't there anymore. It was like your lights made him dissolve or something. As it was my cabin... My night patrol partner acted fast and told me to stay with the kids as he darted off to look in the brush behind the cabins for anyone hanging around. We sent the third member we had left at the picnic table to the lodge to bring all the other counsellors back early to do a search of the grounds. We came up empty and I remained confused as to what I should be wary of. I knew this wasn't a joke. My instincts were pretty sharp on that. But was it a prowler? Maybe someone from the nearby cottages wandered in to freak the campers out for fun. A creep who liked to spy on boys? Or from their odd description of his appearing and disappearing something else? I hadn't made my mind up yet as to what really went on that night, but as the hot summer nights continued, I would find myself deep in the heart of an all-out war against this presence that climbed all the way up to the director of the camp. I would soon come to learn of untold stories that had been kept from me as a camper and counsellor that could only be revealed to me once I found myself an unwilling participant in this war. Darker secrets that had been held close to their chest for years and remain there to this day. As to what this was and why it was there. All of this would come to light in the approaching weeks, much to my reluctance to be a part of it all. But for now, I remained innocent just scratching my head, still trying to piece together a logical explanation for it all, unaware that soon logic and innocence would be swallowed up by malevolence and terror. They sat there looking at us, the three head directors of the camp. We had just told them all of the strange events that had been happening in the boys' camp over the last few weeks, and it was a strange sight. These people suddenly seemed very human to me. The look in their eyes was unsettlingly different from what would appear when you passed them on the ring road. These people who were the light of the camp, they giddily sang us songs after every lunch that had us laughing and cheering along with them. They were the warm, comforting hug to the younger kids if they missed home, and they were the delicate friends that waved goodbye with a glisten of saline in their eyes as the bus pulled out onto the main road at the end of summer. I did not see those people in front of me anymore. They were now just regular people that you would pass on the sidewalk or in a grocery store. They no longer seemed special or superhuman to me. And this was for one reason. They looked scared. The stranger thing to me was that after the numerous fantastic tales of our night stalker and what he had done and where he had been, they did not look surprised. They did not question its validity. I could already see the thoughts racing through their heads. But it was what happened next that frightened me more than anything that had happened to date. The two men and one woman that sat in front of us simply looked at each other for a second or two with no change in expression and then turned back to look at us. So, here's what we need to do. The man responded. There were no questions. There was worry, but no shock. And how did they have a plan so quickly? And then it came to me. They already knew what was going on. Or knew something about what was out there. The three paternal friends that sat before me had changed in an instant. My whole life with these people was a lie. If they'd been hiding this from us, what else were they hiding? What were they hiding? And why? 
We all had these questions that have yet to be answered even to this day. In the coming years, we would reunite and sit around tables with pitchers of beer in front of us, speculating what we had uncovered that summer. All those questions danced around my head in that moment, but I had no time to answer them. We'd been called into action. Something bigger than the night patrol could offer, and we're about to enter into an oath of secrecy, that not only did we have to keep from the campers to keep a wave of fear from enveloping the younger kids, but also from our fellow counsellors, our friends and our families. As a young teenager, this seemed more like being part of a super elite club than anything suspect. But looking back on it now, I never would have agreed to such terms had I known what we were getting into, or how much danger we would be putting everybody else in. If you've never spent a night away from the noise of the city, the sounds of an uninterrupted night are a very strange experience. It is a quiet like you've never heard before, yes, but it's also incredibly loud. Every leaf that blows across the forest floor, every mouse that runs across your roof and every wild loon from across the lake echoes through your ears as you lie awake in the summer heat. The events of the figure at my cabin door a few nights ago had led me to be more tuned to the noises of the forest at night. I would catch myself staring out into the darkness looking for a figure emerging from the shadows, but would never catch more than a bending tree. Being a few years older than the victims of this mysterious stalker the other night, I'd been the voice of bravery and logic. I'd managed to convince the boys that it was likely just an older camper having a bit of fun with them, even though none of us seemed to believe that this was the case. It felt very different lying in my bunk at night. I had taken to listening to music with my headphones on, as every little noise in the wood would jolt me out of my sleep, and I was finding as a lifeguard during the camper's free time, fatigue was not a great quality to have. It was clear that the intrusion was weighing on me, as my dreams had become more vivid and realistic. Instead of having dreams where a long, incoherent story would unravel over the course of my various stages of sleep, they had slowed down and become much more grounded in reality, The most common of these dreams, I would easily confuse with reality. It consisted of me lying in my bunk, as I would be as I slept. The bed had a large, nearly floor-to-ceiling window right beside it, in order to keep an eye on all of the things going on outside, and to put the rows of bunks safely behind you at the back of the cabin. I would be lying in my bed, just looking around the room, aware of everything around me such as the bunks, the shelves and even a tube of toothpaste on the sink. As my eyes wandered around the room, I felt an urge to look out the window, but also a deep fear in my soul of what I would see if I did. As I slowly turned my head towards the blackness of the window frozen in my bed, it was slowly revealed that there was nothing there. But my body still told me something different. My heart began to race more and more, my joints stiffened, and I felt as if there was something out there. I would push my face closer to the window and start to see the outline of a shape. There was something there. My eyes slowly adjusted to the dark, and just as I could make out it was the outline of a featureless face, at top speed it raced right to the window making a deep, guttural gasp, leaving me only a split second to take it in that it was the face of a man, before I would wake up in my bed with the sound of his gasp still echoing in my head. Looking out the window for only a second to convince myself it was a dream, I was reassured by the moon illuminating the campus, making it quite easy to see everything around our cabin, much different than the empty blackness of my detail-specific dream. The feeling of unease remained, but I was reassured enough to be able to drift off back to sleep again. Days passed on and slowly the story of the Midnight Visitor was lost among the endless pursuit of girls, counsellors' rules, bending adventures on their days off and general behind-the-scenes gossip. The campers had found other things to talk about as well and it seemed like they had pretty much forgotten about the whole thing. They'd slowly convinced themselves too that it must have been a very convincing older camper having a laugh at them. The cabins were elevated on cinder block stilts as well as backing onto deep woods 
so the culprit could easily have ducked under the cabin and come out the other side, where he could return to his cabin undetected through the woods. Night Patrol was back to being a place to covertly eat Doritos and drink Orsi Cola in secret while keeping an eye on late-night mischief. The first three-week session of camp was drawing to a close, and one of the big events that as counsellors we tried to hold off to the end was the game of Commando. It was so often requested to be played, we thought it best to maintain the suspense and excitement of it by leaving it to near the end of the first session of the summer. However, we did still want to build up the epic fun of this event, so we had been planning a dramatic introduction for it since before the kids arrived. We had the kids think we were having a campfire and asked them to come in proper fire-safe footwear, which would be the same that they would need on the rugged mountain landscape we would be playing the game on. We all gathered around the fire, and I'd even started to tell the start of a campfire story when the real game kicked into action. All members of staff were required to participate in afternoon and evening programmes, as well as our leaders in training. So the fact that no one was missing from campfire dulled the suspicions that there was anything but a campfire going on that night. We had gained the use of several other staff to pull off our stunt, and one of them had their parents' black suburban to use for their days off. So the elaborate execution of the start to the real programme was going to be like nothing they had seen before. The head of our age division was facing the whole group on a small makeshift wooden stage with his back to the road through the boys' camp. He was still recounting the story when a rumbling was heard in the distance. The black SUV skidded into the camp, stopping right behind our leader. There were two counsellors dressed in black hanging off the runners on the side of the vehicle, who jumped off before the SUV had even stopped. They quickly came up behind him, threw a burlap bag over his head and dragged him towards the car. From there, another staff member had opened the door to the back and the two thugs threw him in and jumped back on the runners as the back door closed and the SUV sped off the path towards the mountain. All of this happened in about five to seven seconds, so needless to say the campers were left stunned and excited at what this insane introduction was set up for. As we slowly revealed to them that they would need to infiltrate the compound in the dark to retrieve their leader, they clued in this had all been set up for commando and were beyond thrilled. They all started gathering up old coals from the fire and smearing their faces with it like war paint. Others quickly darted back to their cabins to don themselves in hoodies and all-black attire. Then, as a group, we marched up through the wooded path and to where the edge of the sandpit meets the forested mountain area. This was where we gave them their final debriefing before we sent them off into the dark woods to crawl to victory. Now the circle they needed to gain access to was about three quarters of the way up to the top of the mountain, so they didn't need to crawl the whole way. You would usually just drop when you got close enough to see the tagging flashlights. Before that you would just dive, leap and hide behind trees until you made it to the point. There were a few spies before the circle that could pick you off before you got too close. But to allow the kids to have fun and get into it more, we would usually only burn those kids who were just casually strolling to the top. If you were running, diving or discussing any type of plan, we would just continue to linger in the dark, sometimes undetected just a few paces away. This was my job that night. I was placed about halfway up the mountain trail and had found a nice big fallen tree to camp out behind. It kept me hidden from sight and would allow me to surprise any slackers or remain unnoticed to those putting in an effort, so they could continue confidently on their way. So there I sat alone, in the dark, listening to the screams of defeat, the cursing of rolled ankles and the endless, less than subtle, snapping of twigs. It was early enough in the summer that it was still warm at night, so I was quite comfortable at my station and settled in there for the night. Dusk had now turned to night, and the deep forest was pitch black if you were not armed with a light source. I remember there had been a slight breeze that night, as I'd become quite zen lying on my back and staring up at the swaying trees through what starlight was able to puncture the canopy. The sound of the wind kissing through the leaves had started to push out the noise around me, and I became very peaceful and alone with my thoughts. I couldn't tell you what I was thinking about in that moment, but it was quickly punctured by a nearby cry for help. 
At first I wasn't phased because as I mentioned earlier, rolled ankles, scratched faces and kids running full speed into an invisible tree were all common during this game. But as the cries started to move closer to me, I could hear a bit of fear and panic in the kids' voices. Help! Somebody help! This isn't a joke! There was a path at the base of the mountain a few hundred metres down the slope from me, so I got up, turned on my flashlight, and at about half a run began to leap over rocks and stumps to hopefully meet up with the party on the path. By the time I got down to the path, I was pretty much landed right on top of the groups as they were making their way down the path towards the clearing at the edge of the sandpit where we had started the game. It seemed that there were three of them, an injured party in the middle and a friend on either side shouldering his wounded weight. The boy on his left shoulder I knew well and had grown up with at home, so I was relieved he seemed okay and was merely helping his cabin mate. What happened, I asked, are you okay? He hurt his leg, he cut it on a dead branch or something, the right shoulder responded. I bent down with my light to take a look at it. It did look a little more than your standard scratch from a rogue branch. It had torn through his jogging pants and the calf that I could see that had some blood had started to make its way through the fabric of his pants. There was a large boulder at the edge of the path so I directed him to it. Right and left shoulder slowly lowered him down onto a sitting position on the rock. The injury must have been worse than it looked because right and left shoulder looked quite shaken. We had lost a camper in another age group that summer to a compound fracture from slipping on a rock in the same area, so I started to worry about the effect two massive injuries would have on our elaborate programming that all the kids seemed to love so much. I peeled back the torn pant leg to see what lay underneath. I was met with a sizable gouge taken from the boy's calf and a fair amount of blood that seemed to be trickling down his leg. As all the counsellors were scattered across the mountain in the darkness, leaving my post without telling anyone would be a bad idea. If another injury occurred and I was not there, that would be my head. Do you guys think you can get him down to the health centre, to have them see if he needs stitches? Now, left shoulder was a bit scrawny, but right shoulder was a pretty large kid for his age. He had hit the puberty train a bit earlier than all of his friends. He was a confident kid because of this, and was somewhat of a leader for his group of friends. Not a lot seemed to faze this guy. But at my suggestion to usher his injured friend down to the health centre, he exhibited that same look to left shoulder as I would see the next day when we would approach the camp directors. Uh, do we tell him? Look, I asked them what else I needed to know. I expected maybe they had been up to something when the injury happened, and left shoulder was going to rely on our age-long friendship to get them out of it, thus needing me to escort them to the health centre myself. Left shoulder spoke up. It's okay, you can tell him. The injured party drew in a deep breath, swallowed a golf ball-sized lump in his throat, and lifted his head to look at me for the first time since he and his friends had been intercepted on the path. There's somebody out there, he said. I asked him what he meant. I hadn't made the connection yet. It was an infinitely dark forest with 50 kids and 10 counsellors out there, so to me, there were lots of people lurking in the darkness. Someone creepy. I don't think they're from the camp. More information seemed to be coming. My role was now shifting from first aid to detective. In a game where we had staged a kidnapping, it wasn't hard to imagine one of the teenage counsellors getting a little too much into character to amp up the excitement of the game. He didn't look like anyone. It was after I got hurt. I caught my leg on the branch of a fallen log and it hurt to run, so I called out for help. I was looking around to see if anyone had heard me and there he was. He was standing about as far away from me as you are. We were barely arm's length apart. I thought he was a counsellor because he was taller So I've said, I've hurt my leg, can you help me get down the path? But he just stood there, totally still, staring down at me. This was starting to sound eerily familiar now. I wasn't ready to jump to conclusions just yet, though. Did he say anything? I asked. No, he just stood there. I even reached out my hand to him for help, 
But when I did that and he just stood there, that's when I freaked out. I screamed and got up and started to run down the path as fast as I could. My eyes left his as I shone my flashlight now into the dark woods behind us. Like a hummingbird, the light darted from tree to tree, up the hill, down the path, nothing. Did he follow you? I didn't look, I just kept running. Then I ran into these guys just before I got to the path, and they helped me get down the rest of the way. We were trying to get to the clearing when we ran into you. Did he touch you at all? No. What did he look like? But I never got his answer to that question. Another scream had pierced the night. This one was not one of pain but of absolute fear. I continued at a more rapid pace, almost hyperventilating. My heart began racing. This was still unfolding above us as we stood there at the base of the mountain. I had to do something fast. As I may be the only one who had that fraction of the story that I just heard seconds ago. I turned to left and right shoulder. Get him out to the clearing, but wait there out in the open together. I'll go see what it is. I didn't even wait for their reply. I disappeared back into the darkness behind them and began blindly slashing my way through the branches, headed towards the scream. Where are you? I called. A distant, panicked voice called back. I tore through the night, barely able to make out the landscape as my flashlight leaped around incoherently from my erratic sprinting through the trees. I had one hand that extended in front of me, holding out the only source of light in the wood. My other hand was just above my brow, keeping whatever branches were whipping by me as I ran out of my eyes. I could feel my face and my arms getting picked apart bit by bit from all of the branches. The cuts were starting to burn a bit, and I was getting out of breath from running uphill at top speed. The voice was much closer now. My flashlight picked out a small hooded figure coming at me from behind the trees. This kid wasn't hurt. He was scared. When we only got to be a few feet apart, he spoke. There's someone up there. Up the mountain, I was crawling on the ground trying to stay quiet and I saw him standing by a tree in front of me. It wasn't a counsellor, I'm sure. I wanted to be sure before I sounded the alarm. One incident could be a misunderstanding. But if there were two cases of this guy getting this close to kids, we had to do something. He was too tall, and I just got scared when I looked at him. He made me feel different, so I started to slowly get up. He didn't move. I stood all the way up and was facing him, but he didn't do anything. He didn't shine his light on me, so I said hello. He didn't say anything, he just stood there staring at me. I'm pretty sure he never moved, so I screamed and ran down the mountain. I couldn't see his face, just that he was tall with big shoulders and he was very still. I think he was wearing all black. I told him it was probably just one of the counsellors getting a little too into character. That was a lie. We liked to have our fun, but if a kid like that freaked out over something you did to scare them, you would be in big trouble. I just wanted to keep him calm long enough to get to the path and into the clearing to safety. I kept him talking all the way down until we made it to the path. Once we were there, we turned to a brisk jog until we made it to the clearing. As we emerged out of the darkness, into the open air of the sandpit, I saw the three boys I had left ten minutes ago waiting for me. Left shoulder looked to me as a friend for answers. What the hell is going on out there? Did he see him too? The smaller hooded boy answered. Did you see the man up on the mountain? It was clear we could be on the verge of mass hysteria here, so I had to step in before things got out of hand. We don't know what he saw. It's probably just a counsellor being a jerk. There was only one counsellor I could see doing this. I don't know why he took the job in the first place. He seemed to not be overly attached to any of his kids. He was always moody and he put in no extra effort to do anything around the camp. I'm pretty sure he was only there so he could hang out with his friends all summer and make a bit of cash doing it. In fact, we had been caught pranking him ourselves one night, so he was already boiling over. At the moment, that was seeming like the more hopeful explanation, that something sinister was not in fact going on. That was until I saw him emerge from the second entrance to the mountain from the top of the sandpit, with two campers in tow. He saw me with my pile of kids in the middle of the field, and picked up his speed as he came towards me. There's someone up there creeping out the kids. In that moment it finally sank in. 
there were still 40 kids and 8 counsellors up there, and they were all in some kind of danger. The time for keeping this discreet was now over. We had to act fast. He scared these guys too. We gotta shut this thing down now. You stay here and wrangle anyone else that comes down. I'll go up and tell everyone else and get all the kids down. And with that, my adrenaline kicked into high gear. Without turning back, I put my own personal fears behind me and dashed back into the open mouth of the wood. As I passed through the entrance again, I looked back at my friends one last time, watching them slowly being swallowed by the infinite black void I was running into. Only once the safety of the sandpit had been completely absorbed by the black of the forest did it occur to me that he, it, was still in here somewhere. The fact that he had been picking off the kids one by one meant this had not finished. I could still hear laughter from above and playful hollering, the innocence of those still on the mountain unaware of what was going on around them. I had stayed to the path for my own safety but running at top speed. I was running so fast I couldn't feel the difference between when my legs were in flight or slamming into the forest floor. As I ran deeper into the vulnerable blackness... I kept my eyes darting all around me for any sight of the spectre. I could still hear the rest of the group, but they seemed so far away. Once I could start to make out the voices, I stopped in my tracks, shone the light all around me to make sure I was still alone, and then at the top of my lungs, belted out into the blackness. Game over! Now usually this would be called once the program was nearing its clock-out time, so that the campers could return to their bunks in time for an acceptable bedtime. However, the game was far from over at that point, so my cries were not met with the usual chain reaction of other counsellors on the mountain hollering, so everyone spread out in the night could hear and return to the sandpit entrances. No one answered. Game over! Everyone to the sandpit! I could start to hear the sound of confusion and anger from the game being cut short. One of the counsellors even chimed in, It's not game over! Damn it, I thought. They had no idea what was going on. I would have to leave the trail and go back into the brush to wrangle up as many kids as I could on the way to the circle and get the other counsellors with me. The distant call of game over was coming from the sand pit. It was the voice of all the kids that had been rescued and the counsellor. Thank God. Maybe their cries would help everyone to take my call more seriously. So once more I threw my light in front of me put my arm in front of my eyes and cut into the dark, all the while yelling that the game was over. Back up the hill I ran, running into kids along the way, urging them to leave the woods. Their concerns of why remained unanswered for now, but I knew once they made it out the stories would build and there would be no way to keep what was going on quiet. I could hear the confusion as I approached the circle. I shone my light on the group and spoke. I told them we had to get out and they asked if someone had been hurt. I'd forgotten already the injured boy that had started this all. He was still hurt, but that injury was the last thing on my mind right now. There's someone up here stalking the kids. He's approached three different kids already and who knows there could be more. There's not much to go by. They all seemed to think he was a counsellor at first. Said he was tall, fairly big, wearing all black but no one got a look at his face. I've got six kids and a counsellor down at the pit who've already all seen him. Leave everything, we'll get it in the morning, let's just get these kids down. Split up and keep yelling game over and we'll all meet to the pit and do a head count in ten minutes. And that's what we did. Spread out across the black forest, all of us watching our backs while trying to find as many kids not ready to quit as we could. When we finally got everyone back down and accounted for, the questions began coming, as the story had already been passed around the group. The usual copycat stories come out like, oh yeah, I saw a dude in the woods too, and I turned my head and he was gone. Most of these stories didn't match the earlier accounts of the night, or the incidents with the flashlight batteries. So I just took these as other kids wanting to be a part of this big thing. We calmly told the group what was going on, but tried to lower their fears by suggesting it was a drunk nearby cottager trying to spook us. Deep down, that wasn't what I believed was going on but my story was no less frightening that a stranger could be wandering the property at night, sidling up a few feet from the kids in their cabins or in the dark forest. Luckily, 
the excitement of them setting up their own night watches and plans to look for clues in the woods the next day quickly changed fear to adventure. We, the councillors, however, shared a different view on the night's events. After we had debriefed the night patrol to be on the lookout and added an extra two staff to the night's watch, we headed as a group up to the lodge to decide what to do next. We have to tell the directors. This could have been really bad, at least if they know it takes the heat off us if something happens. But what do we say? Like, what is out there? I don't know, but the way those kids reacted, even the scariest of locals couldn't have spooked them like that. Don't you think it's weird that at the cabin or in the woods no one has seen its face? Yeah, it. It doesn't speak, it doesn't have a face, it doesn't even move. I mean, what the hell is out there? It's out there right now, somewhere. How the hell am I supposed to ever sleep again? We don't have any locks on the doors. I mean, they barely even shut and we're just a step away from the mountain. What we need to do is tell the directors. They'll know what to do. I mean, what if this thing is creeping around the girls' camp too? So it was decided. We would keep a patrol out for that night, then in the morning we would meet with the directors to tell them what happened, before the rumour made its way to them. I barely slept that night. I just kept staring out into the dark expecting to see something, but I never did. My only relief that night was during the little sleep I did get. I didn't dream of the figure and its face jumping up to greet me at my window. However, I would have welcomed those dreams if I had known the next time I would see the mysterious figure, it would no longer be in my dreams. The rest of the summer began to drift slowly along without incident. The constant fears of a stalker in the night passed as the campers that experienced it left and a new group joined. It was beginning to seem that whatever had happened before would now become something of an overworked legend to bring back with them next year and scare the new campers with. This was not to say that we had not been, and were not still, taking the potential threat seriously, but it was slowly becoming more of a formality than a mission. The councillors continued their patrol while the campers were alone in their cabins, and the senior staff, as far as we knew, were still conducting their patrol of the whole grounds in shifts. Neither had turned up any more evidence of the phantom, however. I was still a little spooked, and would stare out into the darkness every night before I fell asleep, to see if there was anything lurking in the shadows, but there never was. I had become quite fond of a female counsellor at the camp, and we had grown into each other's company as the weeks had gone on. She was a lively, fun and warm companion, and we would started to take our relationship as more than just a summer fling. With all this, my time when I wasn't with the kids was spent as much as possible with her, especially after hours when we could be alone. I felt like I was floating every time I would see her, And even when we were not together, the thought of our reunions would keep my spirits elevated throughout the days. Even my campers thought she was amazing. From time to time, she would join us for various activities during free time with her campers, as an excuse for us to be together. The summer had really turned a corner from its dark beginning to a bright, warm embrace, about to lead us into the final weeks of the summer. It was the last week of the second session, when we had the council again for new arrivals. We all marched from our camps up the ring road to the secluded spot on the edge of the woods and entered the torchlit arena once more. I wish I could say that I felt something different that night, that there was a dark foreboding feeling that something had changed, but the truth is everything felt really normal. The ceremony concluded and we slowly took our firelit walk back down to our cabins and headed off to bed. My group, however, had something else planned. The previous fall, after all the campers had gone home but before the winter arrived, the full-time staff had taken to building a treehouse at the edge of the woods in the range field. It was large enough to sleep ten, and had been made so that individual cabins could book it for the night, to have a special sleepover. You could sign out a special kit to make the night a bit more exciting, such as chlorophyll lifesavers, where if you bit into them in complete darkness, sparks would shoot from your mouth. A map of the stars a list of plants you can find in the woods that were edible for a treat, and finally a bar of chocolate to share. I'd booked this for my cabin early, purposefully having it on the night of the council, thinking after such a mystical night, what better place to retire than in a treehouse under the stars. The moon was bright, and nearly full that night, and the sky was crystal clear, 
making it perfect for us to do a bit of stargazing before we retired to the elevated hut. Once we had foraged for apple-flavoured clovers, watched each other's mouths spark and devoured our chocolate, we moved happily up the ladder and into our hut. Once inside, there were two meshed windows to allow some airflow in. One looking into the forest that began just a few feet from the foot of the structure and another overlooking the vast open sand pit where so many of our programmes were held. The kids were still old enough to not be afraid of the dark, so once we were all in our sleeping bags and settled, we turned off the flashlights, told a ghost story or two, and settled back to listen to the cool August breeze pass through the hut. I was tired, but the boys were still excited, so I continued to let them talk while I tried to settle down to sleep. It was a fun night, but being a hormonal teenager, my thoughts drifted to regret that doing this meant one less night I could spend with my girlfriend. As I began to drift off, pleasant, relaxing thoughts of planning a way to see her the next day helped guide me into a calm, relaxing sleep. Bang! I woke up, I think. Had I been asleep? I thought I heard something. Or was it just a sound I'd carried with me from a dream as I woke up? The kids were silent and seemed asleep, so it must have been my imagination. I was groggy enough that I could settle back down to sleep again as long as I BANG! Wait, there had been a sound. Maybe one of the kids thrashing around had banged his leg or his arm against the wall of the treehouse. My eyes were open now, but I was still lying down. I listened through the sound of the wind, the leaves and the cicadas to see if I could hear anything else. BANG! This time I shot up out of my reclining position to see what was going on. I was not alone. I could see two other campers had been awoken and were listening intently as well. It sounds like something hitting the side of the treehouse, one of them whispered. I suggested that maybe it was a squirrel dropping acorns, knowing full well it would have to toss it like a baseball from the edge of the forest for it to be hitting our fort. Bang! This time it made a few of us jump and roused a few more campers. That's when it hit me. A cold wave of fear washed from my feet up to my head as if I had just jumped in ice-cold water. My fingers began to tingle and my body felt as if it had lost nearly all of its mass. Their words were just echoes now and I was sure I almost blacked out until I noticed one of them moving towards the window. Wait, I called out, still in a whisper. Don't. If it's somebody trying to scare us, they'll want a reaction. If we don't let them know we can hear them, they'll just go away. I held up my index finger as if to say, hold on a minute, and asked them to leave their flashlights off so we could still be under the cloak of darkness. I slowly made my way to the window and looked into the forest. If someone was trying to scare us, that would be the easiest place to go undetected and to make a getaway should we decide to challenge them. They could disappear into the darkness in a flash. I peered around as best I could but couldn't make anything out. But as I was looking out into the darkness, bang! I quickly but quietly moved from the forest window to the range field window, all while holding up my hand to direct the campers to stay put. I stayed low and out of sight until I got to the second window and slowly raised my head up until I could see outside. What I saw could not have been more of a surprise. My thoughts had gone back to the mysterious phantom. We were alone. A good ten-minute walk from the nearest cabin, surrounded by dark forest, but completely vulnerable out in the open. If it was the dark figure, I'd fully expected to have seen something when I looked to the edge of the forest, something blending into the darkness, trying not to be seen, but being seen enough to scare us. But what I saw in the window was not trying to hide. It was not trying to discreetly spook us from the shadows. The moon illuminated a tall, dark figure, out in the open, standing only a few feet from the base of our ladder, motionless. My head quickly shot back down out of sight while I tried to collect my thoughts. I hissed at the campers to be quiet. Bang! I was panicking. I fanned the air with my hand aggressively to tell them to keep quiet and stay down. For all he knew, we were still sleeping. I peered out again to see the figure in the exact same spot, in the exact same pose, motionless, 
I tried to get a closer look to see if it looked like a counsellor trying to spook us, a cottager having some fun, or a ghost even in a dark cloak. But that was the funny thing. Its shape had man-like qualities, broad shoulders, tall, and it had the characteristics of a man, but it was like everything else was smudged. Even in the bright moonlight I couldn't tell what he was wearing, what kind of hair he had, his skin colour, nothing. Everything was just the same shade of black, without any characteristics. Gathering all the courage I had, I waited, staring out at the figure for the next bang. I wanted to see what he was throwing, how he threw it, if he was alone. So I waited and waited for what seemed like an eternity. Nothing. It was the longest the treehouse had gone without an attack. I slid down and turned my head to look at the camper, but the second I did, bang! Now I was really scared. It was dawning on me that we were trapped. We had only one way in or out of the treehouse and the figure was just steps away from it. If we were to flee in terror, we would almost certainly have come face to face with it. If we were to stay, we risked the possibility that he could attempt to climb up the ladder to us. He wanted to make himself known to us, so what would stop him from taking it that one step further? I directed two of the boys to sit on the trap door while I tried to come up with a plan. With my direction, our situation began to dawn on them now as well, and fear began to take over the room. I briefly told them about what had been seen weeks ago to prepare them, and started to hatch an escape plan. We would keep the strongest flashlight lit, but everyone else unloaded the batteries from theirs as projectiles. We would need to stay close and all go down together, but I would have to go down first. I had nothing other than the batteries to protect myself, as we were forbidden to bring knives in the camp, in case a camper got hold of it and wounded themselves. We would leave the sleeping bags, pillows and everything else there and collect it all in the morning. Everyone anxiously agreed, while I lifted my head to get one last look at where the figure was. But as I cleared the frame of the window and gazed onto where he had been before, he was nowhere to be seen. I wish I could say I was smart enough to look to where footprints may have come and gone, or if there were even any at all, but I was too terrified to be thinking that clearly. I took a moment to scan the area as far as my eyes could make, then I quickly darted to another window to see if he was lingering in the woods. Nothing. All right, I don't see him anywhere, now's our chance. Lift the door slowly and I'm going to see if he is there, so get your batteries ready. If he's not, I'm going to jump down, scan the bushes quickly with my light, but as I'm doing that, you guys start coming down as fast as you can, you got it? The two boys slowly got up off the door. We waited a second with our arms raised to see if it would burst open. Silence. So I quietly grabbed the latch and pulled the door up into the room. Peering down into the abyss, I could see nothing at the foot of the ladder or nearby. I think I hit one rung and just dropped the rest of the ten feet into the sand. I swung my light quickly into the bushes, the easiest place to attack from the dark. I called out to the rest as they started jumping and climbing down one by one. I continued to stay planted, all the while scanning 360 degrees around me for any sight of the figure. When the last boy was down... We still seemed safe. I took a moment to gather everyone. And we ran. Darting our heads around for anyone coming from the trees as we crossed the open sand pit, we stayed huddled together. As we came to the forested path that led us back to the boys' camp, we all started making noise, as if we were trying to ward off a bear attack. Screaming, some threw their batteries into the bushes anyway, and looking behind every so often to see if anything had joined us. Finally... We saw a light at the end of the path that meant we were just about to rejoin boys' camp. We tore up the stairs into the centre of the cabin and just stood there for a moment. Okay, what the hell was that? One of them asked. We don't know, I replied. I'm going to go next door and let another counsellor know what just happened and he'll keep an eye on you guys while I go up to the lodge and tell someone what happened. And that's what I did. And just like that, boys' camp was back in a state of rumoured panic. The story spread, as well as the stories from the last session and soon everybody was on alert. I would turn the spring-loaded hinge inside out at night to act as a lock of some sorts and never really got a comfortable sleep for the rest of the summer. 
no one ever saw him again. That was the third and final sighting that year. The funny thing about it was you would expect in a situation like this to get all kinds of false claims of I saw him or yeah there was a face in my window last night. But I think because this was so real and beyond any ghost story that people were genuinely scared and were more concerned with staying out of his reach than becoming part of the story. There was one more time when all the councillors were invited to the camp director's house for dinner where we all left boys camp together. On the walk there, I had what I could describe as a near panic attack. My heart started racing. Every sound made me jump and I almost started to perspire. I began to look all around, feeling as if someone was watching me. In the bushes, behind the cabins, but I never saw anything. The moment we crossed the creek bridge that led out of boys camp and onto the ring road, the feeling vanished. I passed it off as nerves from meeting the camp director for dinner, and feeling the relief of a cool August breeze once we were out of the trees and into the open. But a little something in me now can't help but wonder if it may have been something else. Escaping my thoughts at the time, I can't help but observe that all of these events had a direct effect on me. The first was at my cabin door, the second was an attack on a neighbour from home, and the third time was while I was in the treehouse. Why was this figure choosing me to stalk? Was it trying to frighten me or give me some kind of message? If it was, I sadly think I did not receive it. Now, 43 years old, I look back throughout my life and have mapped together some strong connections with energies outside of our realm. I've had strong physical reactions to two different homes in my youth that I later learned in life had a tragic story or a history of paranormal visitors. I've been in buildings where I've been overcome with sadness or in the case of a tour of our city's retired jail, the feeling I can only describe as if my emotions were grabbing hold of me and trying to drag me out the door. I nearly collapsed after leaving the building and took me a long walk and a few hours just to calm down. I've also been able to feel the other side of this where meeting somebody or entering a building and being overcome with a flood of warmth and welcoming like entering your home on Thanksgiving to smell the turkey and potatoes cooking with a warm fire roaring in the distance. Was this visitor some sort of physical manifestation I'd created? I'd gone into that summer camp having just learned my father was dying of cancer. Had my emotions been so strong around this time that I created this traitless figure to follow me around? Was it a physical representation of my grief? I may never know. But, coming to the halfway point in my life, I'm seeking to find answers to these questions more aggressively than I did in my youth. Accepting that I have a heightened awareness of energies around me and what I can use this knowledge for. I do have many other stories of my experiences with this sensation, but this was the only one where it has ever been something I could see. I just hope that whatever it was, and whatever it was trying to do to me, that it succeeded. Thank you so much to Craig for sending in your story. Thank you so much to you for listening to today's story. If you would like to send in your own story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.